Hey y'all, it's your host, Megan Kenny, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Lifting the Fog, a podcast that hopes to become a collection of conversations offering support and connecting individuals affected by childhood cancer. In this week's episode, I'm joined by pediatric neuro-oncologist, Dr. Scott Coven. I really enjoyed this week's episode where we were able to talk about the different types of brain tumors and the related treatment, but also specifically about his practice and why he truly values the work that he does. Dr. Coven is also passionate about delays in diagnosis and what we can do to prevent that. He's working with a few of his colleagues um, since 2014 um, to establish an organization called Brain First, um, which he describes in the podcast um, as having the goal of trying to bring advocacy and awareness to impact early diagnosis and the goal to improve the dialogue between parents and providers when discussing symptoms that parents might be noticing and concerned about. Um, so again, it's a really, really great episode. Um, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot too. Um, and you can you can just tell by the conversation um, and also in just working alongside Dr. Coven how passionate he truly is about um, serving the families that he does. Um, so we hope you enjoy. And as always, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at LiftingTheFog1 and email us at LiftingTheFog1 at gmail.com with any questions, concerns, or ideas for future conversations. Um, thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoy. No, I could do it an hour later. Okay, we're recording. I can hear you. Okay, I'll edit this out. Um, so today we're joined by Dr. Scott Coven, pediatric neuro-oncologist, director of the neuro-oncology program at Riley Hospital for Children. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if we can just start with your background and why neuro-oncology? Why'd you get into this field? It's great. Um, I grew up in rural Virginia and uh, had a long time um, interest in just kind of public health. My dad was a pharmaceutical rep, so I remember a long drives with him as a teenager going to see areas where the doctor was, the dentist office was, the pharmacy was everything. And I, I was inspired by those moments, but didn't know that I was going to be a physician out of college. Um, went and did some postgraduate work and then um, was working in a hospital and just realized that, you know, my personality fit better with seeing patients and being on the front lines. So took a few years off, went back to medical school. And then in my fourth year of medical school, I decided um, that I was going to do a pediatric hematology oncology rotation uh, in West Virginia. I'd already known that I was going to do pediatric residency. I just didn't know what I was going to do after that. Um, I told my mom that I needed to be challenged by the worst diagnoses, and I thought Hemonc would probably provide that experience. And so during the first week, I got to go to a Hemonc camp, and I was just completely blown away. Uh, it was just kids running around, both with hemophilia. They were infusing their own blood products. I mean, as, as low as six, eight years old. I was just completely inspired. Wow. Um, interestingly, at the end of that week, on a Friday, on the Friday night, first week, um, a child came in with a brain tumor. And it was a brainstem glioma. And the physician said that he was going to go back and share the diagnosis with the family that evening. For some reason, and he, he had told me, 
Yeah, there's no need. You're a medical student. You don't need to come back. And I decided for some reason to come back. And I, I came back to that experience and saw him present the information. Everybody was crying. I remember being in the room just completely overwhelmed, but realizing that this is for me. You know, I have to do this. So then I, you know, went to residency and then knew I was going to do pediatric hematology oncology fellowship. Um, so then I, I, the next part of that is you match into a program. So I ended up at Nationwide Children's Hospital. And there I did not think that I was going to do brain tumors as well. Um, I thought I'd maybe just do general hemoc and kind of mm-hmm. do everything. And I met my, my mentor, who is still a good friend, Jonathan Finley, uh, who is a well-known pediatric neuro-oncologist um, throughout his experience. And I just felt like I could look back on that first experience with the hemonc patient in you know, many years prior and realize that it just was all supposed to happen. Yeah. You know, that I was supposed to meet him, but I was, I met that child and family long ago and that it kind of had all come back full circle. And I realized at that moment that I was going to be a pediatric neuro-oncologist. And that was in 2014. Okay. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and I'll just ask you now because you kind of briefly talked about it being in the room with a, that physician when he broke the news to, to a family. And I, I mean, there's, there are a lot of things that you guys do that I don't know how you do it, but that to me, I, I always think about that, that I don't know how in that moment you, you do that with families and I'm sure feel the pressure to also be like a source of strength and, um, and guidance for families in that moment. I also know you're a parent and I'm a parent. So can you talk about from that moment to now in your practice and maybe how your practice has evolved and you've evolved as a physician, how you navigate doing that and has it changed? That's a good question. I'm sure it has changed. You know, I think there are certainly moments, um, you know, when our first was born is now eight was 2011. So mm-hmm. I was in residency at that time. And I'm sure there were certain events or patients, little kids that I saw that were around the same age that affect me. I I try not to take too much of it home. Mm -hmm. I mean, our kids know what I do. And I think Mm -hmm. I want them to know that children are not as lucky as they are and Mm -hmm. have struggles. Parents have struggles uh, and and people genuinely need one another. And, you know, I think what you get from this job is you realize that you can't do it alone, you know, Mm -hmm. regardless of me being in the room, you know, giving the news, there's our nurse practitioner and our nurse coordinator and our other physician team members. There's our school teachers, our social workers, our psychologists, you know, there's our neurosurgeons, there's everybody. And I think while the oncology portion may get um, reflected upon for whatever news that they have to provide, it's really a team effort. And I think that's how I approach it, that the team is, is what's most important and the team is providing Uh, maybe sometimes some bad news, but hopefully uplifting news at times as well. Um, You know, I, I think personally, I try to do advocacy and awareness events so that, um, you know, I think you get to see those great moments. You get to see kids Mm -hmm. flourish and thrive and strive. And, you know, that to me makes everything worth it. You know, I think, and I always get in trouble because my you know, people will ask you, well, what do you do? And I always just say a pediatrician because, 
you know, you never, the typical response is, well, it's so sad. And in reality, it is sad, but it's, it's not. I mean, we have many more kids who survive these days than don't. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of it is it, think about all the kids that do touch our lives. And, yeah. and, you know, while most communities or most families only get one of those children who have to go through it, we get to experience hundreds of kids every year who are certainly going through very challenging events. But the fact that we can be a part of their journey is, is to me, amazing. I hear that all the time if I tell people what I do, because I can, I mean, being a teacher in our clinic is like a hard job to even describe sometimes, but people all the time say, oh, how do you do that? That's so sad. Mm -hmm. And I often think, yeah, but there, I mean, there are definitely sad moments, but there's lots of happy moments. It's wonderful to watch families and communities come together and, um, and, and get great news and, um, and watch a child's journey and and happy endings, Mm -hmm. but also, and I'm sure you feel the same way. I, I mean, somebody's got to work with these kids and be their doctor and be their teacher. And I feel honored to be the person to do that. So it's, I mean, it has its sad moments, but it's also a gift for, for you or, and for me, for anybody Mm -hmm. that works in that clinic to have such a humbling job where you go home every day and you feel so grateful. I feel so grateful for my children's health Mm -hmm. So it can be sad, but I feel like I don't, we're, I don't we're lucky to, right. to be able to work with these families and be, be humbled every day by the work we do. I don't know if you, I'm sure you feel the same. Well, I, I don't know if you feel the way I do, but I actually don't feel like it's a job. Yeah. I, I often feel, mm-hmm. you know, yes, we get, we all get paid for what we do, but in reality, I can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, yeah. there's nothing else that really, you know, I get up every morning and I'm, you know, happy to go to work and, you know, again, there's harder days and there are days where you're doing more task or administrative stuff that you realize is part of the job. But, you know, there's, a, you know, more days than not, I feel like I'm not really going to work. I'm just doing what I love to do. Yeah. And I think that that sometimes is hard to, to, to show families, you know, to, mm-hmm. to give them all that love and support and have them understand that, yes, I'm the oncologist, but I don't, you know, I don't see them as a task I need to take yeah. care of. I see it as just something I love to do and I'm honored to be part of their life. And do you feel, I'm sure it can be like easy to feel separate from it, but do you feel pretty aware in how important of a role you have, you have in these families' lives? Like not obviously you're the oncologist, mm-hmm. but how much trust they're putting in you and the comfort you might bring when you come into a room and tell them, do you feel pretty separate from that? That's a great question. Or are you aware of that? I don't know that I, you know, I, I think certainly with some of our more challenging brain tumor diagnoses, I think I'm aware of it. You know, the, the ones that we know that survival may not be as good. You know, I, I realize that the balance between hope and you know, death is pretty close to one another. Mm-hmm. And I think in those scenarios, I, I do realize, cause I try to, I try to remember before I go in, you know, who my audience is and what I'm doing and how I'm going to give that news. And, you know, I think again, for me, I think we're lucky to have several other neuro-oncology team members who often go along with that, those talks and can really, gauge how the talk is going and see the family's interactions, see the child if they're there. You know, we would always want an age appropriate child to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. 
But certainly I think, you know, having a nurse coordinator and a nurse practitioner who have been doing it a long time, it can recognize when the conversation has just gotten derailed yeah. or whether they're not picking up anything you're saying, whether, you know, they're, they're, they're mixing what you're saying mm-hmm. and are understanding. And I think I've always appreciated that bond between the whole team and being able to convey that information. I think in some ways I realize, you know, as a physician, you're the one that's often giving the news. So there is that bond of, um, you know, how, how do you separate those things? Mm-hmm. I recall one of my patients, one of my first patients in um, fellowship at Nationwide had a lab, had a lab test on a Friday evening and it was a leukemia patient. Mm-hmm. And the next morning, the lab result came back. And they called me with the results and said, this child has leukemia, but they're at home. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it was on a weekend and I had to call the family into the emergency room Ugh. and say, you know, I have really bad news. I'm going to meet you in the emergency room and we'll talk through the next steps. Mm-hmm. So I got invited to their celebration at the end of therapy, you know, his pool party. And it was such an amazing time. Mm-hmm. And the mom, Amy, looked at me and just said, you know. I love you and I hate you. Yeah. I, I remember the call like it was yeah. yesterday. Yeah, yeah. But I am thankful for for you being there yeah. and being able to to, yeah. to be with us during that journey. Yeah. And I think that as a parent, yeah. if I received that call, I, I don't know how I would feel during that. You know, yeah. I think it, it, in some ways I try to always think about what her experience or their experience mm-hmm. or some of our patients' experience may be. But yeah. I think in some ways you are aware of the news that you're giving and what role it may play moving forward, especially because it may not always be good feelings. Yeah. There may be feelings of, you know, why do you have to be the one? Yeah. And, and, you know, how can we trust you to be their doctor? You know, yeah. uh, My child's doctor when you gave us this news. Yeah. And I can imagine. Associating you with that moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I definitely think, I think it's, weird how I can vividly remember my first day back from my first maternity leave here and instantly feeling a different connection to this place. Like hearing a child cry and being like, Oh my God, I just, you relate to parents differently. You look at children differently. Like certainly if a child's in our clinic and is the same age as my son, it's like, I see my son in that child. So I'm always thinking, um, God, I have no idea what kind of oncology mom I would be. And I think if I would hear that news, I mean, I'd probably be yelling and screaming. And so I just, yeah, our, our parents amaze me all the time. They do. Yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, that's the worst, worst news to hear would be to hear that your child has a cancer diagnosis. I think, um, I think the other thing is how resilient they are though. You know, yeah. I think in some ways, you know, yes, it's hard. You're not sure what they hear at the beginning, but I think sometimes what I'm so impressed with is you see those so fa- the same families, you know, a month later, two months later, and you know they realize there's no way to go but to move on and press on and and to see how resilient the children are mm-hmm. and the parents are to mm-hmm. just keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I I think in the same way what I would I be able to do that? I don't know that I could have that positivity that, mo- yeah. you know, I'm not saying every family has it, but you know, many of our families do. And I, yeah. I, I am always amazed by that. It's gotta be this instinctive 
parental survival mode that just comes over you that makes you be like, okay, what do we got to do? What's the next steps? Um, Well, speaking about when you were talking about the resiliency of of children, what about um, the resiliency of a child's brain? So you're a neuro-oncologist, and I know obviously pediatric oncology and adult oncology is super different. But I think a child that has a brain tumor, their brain is still developing and growing. And what 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 does that mean for them? And then, right. I mean, radiation and chemo are right. pretty toxic. So is that one of the big differences between pediatric and adult oncology is that that is a still developing young brain and you're doing all these things to it? That's a great question. You know, I... I th- I think some of it is is challenging in the sense that, uh, you know, a low-grade glioma, which is really a a non-aggressive brain tuber, Mm -hmm. can just have surgery and have no further treatment versus, you know, a medulloblastoma or something very aggressive that needs, you know, surgery, aggressive surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. And I think the challenge is, you know, obviously, what age do children present uh, with diagnosis, and then what treatment modalities you're gonna uh, pursue? Mm-hmm. You know, certainly, the movement across the field in in most cases is to try to avoid radiation um, for the really young children, mm-hmm. and I think like under five or. Some would say under seven, eight. Okay. Um, and we're, we're determining and knowing more about. Because their brain is developing or because like, can they just handle that? So there's some data from St. Jude long ago that mm-hmm. suggests that at least under seven versus over seven, those who receive radiation under seven typically have worse cognitive functioning. So their IQs drop off roughly around seven. Mm-hmm. And so we think those who get radiation at that time point, less than seven, tend to be at higher risk for loss and overall functioning. So most have tried to push radiation age-wise as far as possible. You know, the other invention that has really been helpful in the brain tumor world is proton radiation therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, which proton is a different type of radiation than what most people think of as conventional, Mm -hmm. where the radiation really is delivered to the tumor and then no radiation goes behind the tumor to any of the other really important vital structures of the brain. And so from that aspect, you can uh, prevent or at least uh, avoid hurting good, healthy brain by using proton radiation. Um, and that's only offered at, at certain centers across the country. And it's expanding on how many centers have access to it because it is a challenge to send patients to proton centers when they may have to travel far distances. They have to uproot families, communities. It can be challenging. Mm-hmm. We think chemotherapy will also affect cognitive and IQ functioning, but probably not to the level of certainly radiation. And then, you know, children who only need surgery, um, we certainly know that longstanding hydrocephalus, so increased fluid um, in the brain Mm -hmm. over long periods of time, can affect a child's IQ. 
and cognitive functioning, even if they just have a surgery and that's it and the tumor is gone and they recover and need no other therapy. Mm -hmm. We know those children are still at very high risk for learning um, deficits later, memory, processing, Physical functioning usually is fairly, fairly good, but it's more of just the overall um, IQ cognitive functioning. Um, and, and this is why we're pushing as a team here at Riley to make sure that all kids with a brain tumor get seen by our neuro-oncology team. So that way our school teachers can assess and make sure that they're, they're not at any more increased risk for learning deficits or getting behind. And I think... The problem is that there's still a lot of our kids who come out of surgery looking fantastic on the outside, mm -hmm. and people often assume that nothing's ever gone wrong with them, or they've recovered from their brain tumor, and they will be completely fine, mm -hmm. and that they're not experiencing any true difficulties, and we know that couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think cancer has this face of that you need to, that you need to look bald and that there's a way that you should look. And if you don't look that way, because we know, well, obviously at, at some point in chemotherapy, your hair will start to grow back. You could still right. be on treatment and you, you're, you have a full head of hair or some people don't lose hair. So we do see with a lot of our kids that they look seemingly healthy. So they have a different set of expectations that may or may not be appropriate for them. Um, so it's hard for these families right. to navigate. Um, but I wanted to back up. So we talked about surgery and radiation and chemo, but not just because you have a brain tumor doesn't mean you would need all of those things. Right. Correct. Right. Okay. So how do you, um, I mean, what, what do typically do kids present with? And then right. how do you move to knowing how to treat them? Sure. So the most common probably presenting feature of a brain tumor is still headache. Mm -hmm. uh, headache under four years old um, and some of my, my work and some of previous work has shown that children under four with a headache is definitely abnormal. Mm -hmm. um, so that that is certainly... So how, how does a child under four even communicate, really? Usually just... My head hurts. Yeah, or, yeah. just pointing to their head. And, and we often hear that from families where, you know, when you ask them what happened or what was the experience mm -hmm. like, they'll say, well... You know, Johnny was pointing to his or her head for, you know, a couple months mm -hmm. and didn't realize, you know, he thought maybe they bumped their head. Mm -hmm. But in reality, then once they present, you realize that probably it was a presenting feature. Uh, vomiting certainly can be common. Mm -hmm. um, seizures are really not that common. Many people think seizure is a, a very common symptom of a brain tumor. It's probably only about 10% where headaches are probably over 50 to 60% of patients present at least with headache. What about vision? Is that? Vision loss, irritability is another one, or behavioral changes depending on where the tumor occurs. A lot of kids may be off balance if the tumor is in the posterior fossa or the very back part of the brain. Um, and then, of course, there's some genetic syndromes like neurofibromatosis where kids get routine imaging for their neurofibromatosis care and often have um, tumors in the eyes. And so that's another common presenting feature of a low-grade tumor. Why is the body having a seizure because of a brain tumor? What's happening? So there's certain um, 
certain tumors specifically that cause seizures. Most often what happens is it is the tumor is growing into the nerves of the brain. And so it disrupts normal nerve, uh, nerve um, findings. And so a nerve wants to send a signal from point A to point B, but if the tumor is sitting there, it doesn't send it, so it gets disrupted. And so what happens is if you get another, enough of those signals that are just thrown off, that'll cause a seizure. So a lot of kids will have seizures and then often get an MRI early, you know, in their seizure care to rule out or make sure that there isn't something more worrisome. Is that pretty basic protocol? If you would have a seizure, you would get a scan of... Should be. Should be. Should be at some point within um, probably the first few months of that. Okay. And there are so many different types of brain tumors. Yes. High-grade gliomas, low-grade gliomas, medulloblastoma. How do you, is that like composition or location in the brain? How are all these brain tumors classified and named how they're named? (laughs) A lot of them are based on location. A lot of them are based on how they look under the microscope. Okay. So, you know, as we talked about, a low-grade glioma um, occurs from the glial cells, which is just a, a, a type of cell in the, in the brain or an astrocyte. And the low grades just are typically tumors that are not very aggressive under the microscope. The high grade gliomas are obviously very aggressive under the microscope. Medulloblastomas are more named for where they, they occur. Um, same with brainstem gliomas, uh, which can vary in severity, but often occur in the very back part of the brain and affect very vital organs. And so that is, um, can be very challenging. Obviously we have optic pathway, which just means the eye. So a lot of them are referred to the areas that they occur or describe maybe the biology of what the tumor does. So can you diagnose a brain tumor just by imaging or do you have to do a biopsy? It's a great question. So there are many patients that either I or our neurosurgery colleagues are just following from an incidental, let's say, somebody was out playing football, had a concussion, had an MRI, can actually find a, a most often a low-grade glioma. It's not going to be something really aggressive. The low-grade gliomas are often the ones that just sit around for long periods of time, talking six months to years. And so you can often have patients that have just incidental low-grade tumors. If they're not having any other symptoms, mm-hmm. often what we can do is just watch with MRI and avoid surgery. Mm-hmm. And many times they can grow up with it there, but never require any therapy, surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation. Okay. So once you've diagnosed the brain tumor and, and told the family, and how, how do you then decide what that child's treatment plan is, is going to be? Right. It definitely depends on the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, diagnoses like medulloblastoma, high-grade gliomas, uh, papendomoma, which are, are not the most common, but mm-hmm. uh, medulloblastoma mm-hmm. is probably the second most common. Uh, and those basket of tumors are very aggressive and require more than just surgery. They require maximal safe surgical resection. So mm-hmm. we ask our neurosurgical colleagues to take as much out but keep them keep the child as safe as possible. And we know that children with the most tumor taken out often do the best long-term. And then depending on ages, uh, the, the specific diagnoses would be whether they require 
radiation and chemotherapy. Medulloblastoma for really small children, let's say under three, um, would probably just get really intensive chemotherapy in the hospital for six months. Older kids with medulloblastoma would get radiation plus some chemotherapy. So a little bit different standards of care. Ependymoma, we often believe that chemotherapy is not as successful in the treatment strategy for, for patients. So they often just get surgery plus radiation and then just get surveillance imaging after that. The challenge, I think, is the low-grade glioma group. Mm -hmm. And that's probably about 50% of all brain tumors anyone would see in a brain tumor program. So if, you know, we're seeing probably somewhere around 100 brain tumor patients a year here at Riley. So that means we would expect to see about 50 low-grade gliomas or so. And the challenge is they can be from just the watchful waiting and not needing anything else but MRIs to, you know, surgical resection, not requiring any treatment, to only potentially doing a biopsy because it's a very challenging location of the brain and then requiring medical treatment for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. And that is a tough, tough population because many of those children will present at two or three years of age and it's almost like a chronic disease. Yeah. And they will be dealing with this through their, their adolescent years into their young adult mm -hmm. and often won't develop and be live up to the expectations that parents have for them. Yeah, and that quote unquote normal. Normal. Yeah. And that could be challenging because yeah. then I think the, there's got to be a new normal. Yeah. And it isn't always easy to reset that baseline or have yeah. those discussions to say, this is actually a low grade tumor. The overall survival is 90% or higher, but yet we're going to be dealing with this for a really long time. Yeah. And that's, that's a group of patients that I personally battle with, but you know, I, it's a, a subsection of patients I really hope to help as much as possible and, and really enjoy taking care of those patients because you do get a lot of continuity of care and you really have to educate them and work with all the team members to really facilitate the best part of their care. Yeah. So I, I in our clinic, I work with all different types of diagnoses. So um, solid tumor, brain tumor, um, blood cancers. And I have to imagine, but I'm not a doctor, obviously, that treating like a leukemia versus a brain tumor is just a whole different ball game. I feel like, is it, would it, would it be the case that in your practice and working with brain tumors, it feels like, especially if a child would have a surgery, um, that there's like all that, there's, there's always balancing, you know, risk and reward and right. is do often do your patients are they going to surgery and then you're reassessing how that went and how much you were able mm -hmm. to get out and then what to do next it's a little bit of both and yeah. i think that's why it's um that's why i appreciate working in such a team environment because as a neuro-oncology program i don't just see it as the physicians you know the nurse practitioners from neurosurgery often know about the patients. So they let us mm -hmm. know. And, you know, a lot of patients, if it isn't a straightforward case, we look through the imaging together with the neurosurgery team and the radiologists and say, all right, clearly you're going to know what approach is best, but we're going to be able to tell you 
this doesn't look like just a low-grade tumor. We're going to need as much out of this as possible or, you know, what should be our strategy on this patient. And we often have patients where the more complicated we discuss weekly at two or every other week at tumor boards to make sure that we're giving each patient the time and, and thought that they need and so that we understand the risks and benefits before the neurosurgery team goes and speaks with them about the next mm-hmm. steps. Now, if it's a straightforward and it looks like a low-grade glioma, you know, our neurosurgical colleagues will often try to take it out as best as possible and then let us know. And then we do, you know, after the surgery imaging to see where we are, and then we'll go move forward with the plan from there. Do you feel like with where technology is at, that the neurosurgery team has a pretty good idea of, I guess, what they're getting into before they start? Or is it often that they start a surgery and think, well, we thought we could resect more than we were able to? I mean, I guess you're not a neurosurgeon, but I know you work so closely with them. Do you, do you feel like their plan changes sometime or do you think they're, they're often know what they'll be able to resect before? Right. I would say, you know, as most surgeons, you know, you prepare for the worst, Mm -hmm. but understanding your surgical skills, know what can be accomplished. And I think with anything in an operating room, you know, they approach, each patient the same way and and dedicating their time and having to be in their long hours to make sure that that child is getting, getting the care that they need. Mm -hmm. I think they, they have to be prepared for that moment that may not, you know, may something could go wrong, something, you know, Mm -hmm. more bleeding than normal. You know, I've, I've spent time in the operating rooms with, with some neurosurgeons in the past and the meticulousness and, you know, the, um, you know, the, the pausing and their demeanor and their ability to just kind of let everything just slow down and, and mm-hmm. realize, okay, this could be a scary moment if we let it. Mm-hmm. We just need to, everyone needs to calm down. And, you know, I think it's that type of behaviors in the OR, in the OR that benefit our children. You know, I would want to know the same things for, for my children mm-hmm. that someone is, is back there, you know, when they're under anesthesia taking the best care that they can, but being prepared for anything that, that could happen. Is it typical that any of your patients would have multiple surgeries? Would be, would it be the hope that you would just one and done it? <laughs> it's always the hope that we could be one and done. But, yeah. You know, again, challenges if something comes up, mm-hmm. you know, they, they try to often before they start a brain tumor surgery, get in there and, send some of the tissue to the pathologist during the surgery Mm. so that they kind of know what the diagnosis may be, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe they'll get word back. Okay. This is a medulloblastoma. They're going to know that they need to be a little bit more aggressive in that upfront window Mm -hmm. with surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they get back. It's a low grade glioma, like we talked about. Well, they may not need as aggressive surgery, you know, because they're not going to get potentially all the other treatment modalities. And their outcomes usually are much higher. So mm-hmm. in those children, you know, the neurosurgeon will often um, get that word back early and then have an understanding of how that should direct the rest of the procedure. Are biopsies pretty invasive or safe? Or <laughs> So invasive and safe are two different yeah. things, right? You know, oftentimes we, we will ask you know, um, our neurosurgeons to go in for a biopsy. Mm -hmm. 
you know, in today's world, especially with brain tumors, the understanding of the molecular biology, how the um, tumor is driven by other influences is really important. And we have a team here with our precision genomics team that will help us send out all of the tissue to special labs that can help us figure out, are there other things driving the tumor? Mm-hmm. And that's that's worked really well, especially our neurosurgeons knowing that even in a biopsy, they need to get as much tissue as possible so that we can have as much information as possible to then relay that to our parents. Yeah. And that impacts decision, treatment decisions. Yeah, because I would assume that having an accurate diagnosis and utilizing precision genomics helps you best treat. Because I've seen, um, because it's helpful for me to know in anticipating a child's school needs to just know their basic treatment plan. So our coordinator has shown me the Bible, if you will, like this thick book of treatment plans. And it's literally, you know, medulloblastoma and here's, um, here are the weeks and here's when they're getting this chemo medicine. So it's pretty laid out. You need to know, obviously, the diagnosis so you know. You know, right. the, the treatment plan. I think what differentiates, obviously, brain tumors and solid tumors from the leukemia or the, the, the blood cancers yeah. is the fact that there is so much, let's say, heterogeneity, meaning there's so many different cancers and they're treated so many different ways mm-hmm. that it does make it challenging to say this is the standard, but it's not really the standard for all the same tumors that occur in the brain, Yeah. right? And I think even a medulloblastoma, which is the same name, can have vastly different treatments depending on age, Mm -hmm. depending on the molecular drivers of the tumor, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and that's important information. And we're realizing that Mm -hmm. information actually impacts outcomes. So if you had a 10-year-old with a medulloblastoma and you had a 18-year-old with a medulloblastoma, do you like calculate their different demographics, their height, their weight to know how much chemo that they get? So it's all, you know, most of these things are all weight-based and height-based dosing. So it's it's as appropriate to the patient and is all patient-specific. Okay. And we know that because, you know, we've been treating kids with cancer since the 1940s and 50s and have been able to understand how children or young adults process and metabolize these drugs. So you know through through research that that's the correct amount of right. you know vincristine that that child can handle exactly okay there's always side effects you know certainly yeah. carboplatin which is a common brain tumor medication can cause a lot of ear problems so some hearing difficulties um, kidney problems the hearing is the challenging one because that obviously impacts everything yeah and certainly impacts their learning ability. That is one that, you know, you could use the same dose on two kids who are the same size and have vastly different effects. Mm-hmm. And so it's very, sometimes very challenging because you give that information that, you know, a complication or side effect could be this. Mm-hmm. And you have, you know, child A and child B and one gets it and one doesn't. And we don't really know why. Yeah. Or why not. Yeah. So what's the difference between why do, why can sometimes kids take chemotherapy orally and at home? Why can kids come in outpatient and take it? And then why would you have to admit a child to take 
chemo? It's a great question. Some of it is based on the intensity of the treatment. Okay. Uh, medulloblastoma, some of our um, really young baby protocols are have a lot of different medications and very intense medications. Mm-hmm. So the side effects you see more often mm-hmm. and earlier. Mm-hmm. And so really require the supportive care side of oncology to ensure that they stay healthy. And we know that involves really good bedside nursing, mm-hmm. really good team coordinated care in the hospital, and really good education, constant education for the family. And I think previously, if you sent those child home, those children home, you'd have an increased risk of infection, treatment failure, um, or just overall bad outcomes. Um, vice versa, what we were talking about with the precision genomics team, there are many tumors, especially in the low-grade gliomas now, where oral targeted therapy is the upfront standard. Mm-hmm. And so many kids can go home or be treated at home and just come for routine clinic visits, obviously with MRIs needed throughout to see how the tumor is responding, but that they can be treated at home with daily or twice daily medications. So when they are inpatient and the chemotherapy regimens may be more intense, do, do they get that? And then, so, so they, they get that medication and then do you like flush it out of their body quickly? Well, it's don't they, cause they don't, don't they get fluids afterwards get, to kind of get that medicine in and out sure. quick? They get tons of fluids, but again, it, I'm not a medical professional. What, what we see <laughs> is that, you know, especially on some of the baby protocols, the chemotherapy medications are only four or five days. Okay. So the next roughly 14 days is, you know, are the side effects from those medications mm-hmm. and then the recovery from those medications. And usually it's probably about half of that are the extreme side effects. So okay. nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, um, you know, risk of infections, Mm -hmm. low blood counts. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, for the second half of that, the second seven to 10 days um, is where they start to recover. Mm -hmm. Their bodies bounce back. You see their resiliency. They start to feel better. They get off the need for feedings, pain control, and their nausea goes down. Their diarrhea goes down. They're starting to eat and drink and do things themselves again. Those first seven days are really past the chemo is really the challenging part because for a family who's never been through it for the, for the first time, and it's just very disheartening. Yeah. You know, Cause they just, just look sick. It's very sad. And there's nothing you can do, but support them and support yeah. the families. Yeah. And for that, I wish we had more in hospital services to help support, you know, families who are going through that. Because also, I mean, and I, I would be the same way. I know, Parents don't want to leave no. their child's bedside. So right. that parent is probably going to be in there the whole time right. and feeling pretty helpless because they can't do much. Right. Um, if a child does have to go inpatient for chemotherapy, um, you know, all things considered and everything goes well, mm-hmm. how, how long would that admission be? Or, I mean, it changes. It does change. So, you know, again, a protocol we have open here is called Head Start. So that's very intensive. So often what children do is, go to neurosurgery, have their brain tumor, Mm -hmm. you know, um, surgery. They get a diagnosis. If they're healthy enough to go home, they'll go home first and then come back to our clinic 
Um, we've already met them, obviously, but then get readmitted into the hospital for chemotherapy. Often during that chemotherapy stay can be two months because we, as part of that protocol, use autologous transplants. So using stem cells, their own stem cells, to help them later on in treatment. So we can give them higher dose chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. So for that, kids can often stay in for about two straight months. That's such a long time. And that's if they even get out of the hospital after their surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be even three to four months, which is really, really challenging. Yeah. And then after that second, we try to get them out for at least seven to 10 days so they can have time at home with their family, siblings, mm-hmm. community. You know, it's important to, to regain some of that lost time mm-hmm. at home. Yeah. Now, other tumors are older medulloblastoma, medulloblastoma patients, for example, may get, you know, a two or three day chemotherapy and then go home. And so they may be treated mostly as an outpatient, which is follow ups. And then, a, you know, maybe once a month just with a two or three day admission. And there are several tumors, um, germinoma is similar to that. Um so, so there are a couple tumors, especially in a little bit of the older kids, that, that would be more like that. Do we know why kids get brain tumors? Do, do you think genet, does, does genetics play a big role in that? Or That's a great question. Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, if you asked my mentor, Jonathan Finley, um, when I started training, you know, maybe even 2010, most people would suspect that cancer in children, even brain cancer specifically, maybe two to three percent was a genetic link, mm-hmm. a genetic reason. Mm-hmm. You know, now in today's era, with all the testing that we do, there's been many recent papers that have shown um, data to say seven to fifteen percent are, are likely somewhere in that ballpark are linked to genetic syndromes. And so most people actually say 10 to 12%, which is a lot higher than 2%, certainly. And that, you know, one in 10 patients that we see with a brain tumor certainly could have a genetic link to um, their family. It could have been inherited in them and they could be the start of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why certainly in the neuro-oncology world, where a lot of these are linked to the genetic syndromes, um, one of our colleagues is really trying to grow the cancer predisposition clinic to have a uh, an infrastructure to support these families, so they know what may what they may be at risk for, um, what their future children may be at risk for, what surveillance do they need? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of institutions across the country are moving towards this type of environment and setup and. Hopefully, within the next few months, we'll be among those institutions to have that. And could your genetic makeup be a determining factor in how your body handles treatment? It could be. We know that certainly in neurofibromatosis, which is a genetic syndrome, mm-hmm. we know in something called Lee-Fermini syndrome, certainly if those children get radiation, mm-hmm. their DNA does not work as well, meaning they're at higher risk for second cancers after radiation because the cells just are not as stable. And that is a direct link between the genetic syndrome and what the genetic syndrome does um, to their body. Um, What about just reoccurrence for brain tumor patients in general? Is that higher, are are 
kids that get diagnosed with brain tumors at higher risk for reoccurrence versus like a, a blood tumor? I would say yes. You know, I think, um, you know, our brain tumor patients often become, I think, so close to our, our team because mm-hmm. of those reasons. You know, I think you often have children who may be de- dealing with a diagnosis since two and at 20, they're still around with our team. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of places, you know, if it's a blood cancer, you, you may be off therapy for five years and get transitioned to a late effects clinic or even in most places and instances, transition to an adult facility. And I know that can be challenging. Yeah. Here we are at least keeping all patients in our late effects clinic for as long as they want to be seen. And certainly in our brain tumor world, we're trying to figure out what works best for our patients and families. So we'd love to hear from them if they're out there that, mm-hmm. you know, what do they want to be transitioned to team members like us on the adult side? You know, do they want to stay, you know, do we need to have a, a brain tumor specific kind of late effects survivorship program? We've debated all of these things. And, and still... if you have thoughts on this, you can email us at liftingthefog1 at gmail, uh, because that, that could be a podcast in itself. It'd be great. Talking to families about how they feel about that, but keep continue. So so a lot of that is, is, is dictated, but certainly there are um, several tumors. Uh, medulloblastoma is one that usually when I tell families, if you get to about two years after completion mm-hmm. of therapy, I'm usually feeling pretty good about um, no late recurrences or relapses. On the other side, ependymoma is one that I struggle with because um, it is one that often case reports of children relapsing eight to 10 years after diagnosis. And, and that's so, such a long time that such a long time. There's such a, could be yeah. a loss to follow up. And I can't imagine as a parent being five, six, seven years out and thinking, God, we're doing great. Yeah. And then the next year scan uh, showing a recurrence. And so while it's not the majority of patients, mm-hmm. it is one that, you know, it, it's fairly common that it does occur. And so I always hesitate and tell families, you know, we still think there's going to be a great chance for survival, but it's one we have to continue to watch and you have to keep showing up for appointments. And you may think it's yeah. dumb, but it's the reason that we keep asking you to go for those appointments and, and to, to have the imaging. And, and we don't know why that happens. We like don't why, know why brain tumors like to. We don't know yet back. all of the ependymoma biology. We know some of it. We're starting to learn more. We're probably more advanced in low grade gliomas and medulloblastoma than we are quite in the ependymoma world. We're starting to learn more about some of its drivers mm-hmm. and what dictates why some patients do really well and why some patients have these late recurrences. And can can we be doing a better job uh, on um, early detection or I no? Sh- I sure hope so. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Because you don't, I mean, we don't want to be scanning right. every kid at their right. well child check, do You're you? Exactly or? Right. No. So what does that look like? So I, that's something I battle with. And since 2014, you know, personally, I've been trying to understand delays in diagnosis. And it's mm-hmm. something we hear commonly from our families. You know, I went to my PCP several mm-hmm. times and then got referred and then I finally got diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine the, the mistrust and distrust that they may have after that. Oh, absolutely. How that, may not only affect our team, but just the whole care team. 
So there's a program in the United Kingdom that was successful in reducing delays in diagnosis called HeadSmart. Um, there's a beautiful website that you uh, go to, headsmart.org-uk. And um, since 2014, we've, we, myself and, and Dr. Finley, have been working with their team to see how we can bring something similar to the United States. Now, we certainly understand litigation and the challenges of healthcare systems are different in the United States and the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. But we also understand that there are simple and, and pretty well-defined guidelines that if patients are experiencing symptoms for certain periods of time, they probably need a further workup. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the challenge is, as we discussed earlier with the symptoms, is that almost every patient has different symptoms. Mm -hmm. There isn't one standard symptom that a child says, hey, I have a brain tumor, scan me. Yeah. And I think that's what we deal with. So uh, where we renamed HeadSmart to Brain First, mm -hmm. and we're now in the process of moving some of the content over from HeadSmart and adapting it, transforming that content to languages appropriate for the United States. That's really and great. Our hope is in the next few months, it can at least become an advocacy and awareness um, opportunity. And, you know, in, in Ohio previously, I gave grand rounds and I discussed delays in diagnosis and we're hoping to launch a few projects and looking at how we can impact delays in diagnosis, certainly here in, in Indiana, both centrally and more rurally and across the Midwest. And that hopefully people will at least talk about brain tumors. And, and while it may not be the most common for people outside of the brain tumor world, we want people to recognize and if they're worried to contact someone. So, you know, right now they certainly can reach out to Lifting the Fog. Brain First will have its own opportunities to contact us in the Riley team through that. If, they, if a family member is concerned, if a pediatrician or family medicine practitioner is concerned, and the real goal of HeadSmart when it first launched was to improve the dialogue between parents and providers so that a parent could look up on the website and say, my child's been having these symptoms for this long. And based on the guidelines, we think you sh there should be more workup. Yeah. And the provider could say, well, you're right. Based on these symptoms, I agree. Or based on these things that are reassuring, we actually don't think you need a scan. Mm -hmm. And that's probably more common that the provider can use brain first to say, I'm reassured by your child now seeing them. And I don't think they need a scan, but maybe seeing that child in person and seeing headache plus some weird eye movement or headache plus some hand movements that are abnormal, mm -hmm. maybe that would get missed. And maybe if they look at brain first or someone hears about it and says, okay, maybe we should just Google brain tumor and it comes up and they use that information to change the potential outcome, that would be fantastic. Because and, certainly early detection has a great impact on treatment or no? So we're not sure. Okay. And, and that's the challenge is that in the United States, there was one paper in 1986 that showed delays in diagnosis existed. And then we looked at this information in Columbus, and now we've done some of it here in Indiana mm -hmm. and show that not only do delays still exist, 
the time interval from when parents say those symptoms started to when patients get diagnosed actually hasn't changed since 1986. So in 1986, they found a patient with a brain tumor had on average about 42 days of symptoms from onset to diagnosis. And our data in, Indi in Columbus and here in Indiana show 42 days, the same. Now that adds all comers. And so the challenge is that for really aggressive tumors, many patients will present before 30 days. But the challenge is when you tease out the low-grade tumors, which is what I told you about half of all brain tumors, those children are the ones that six months of symptoms before they were diagnosed. Wow. So those are the children that we suspect have maybe more issues with long-term learning, with maybe if they were diagnosed sooner, a better surgery could have occurred. Uh, they may have less complications after the surgery. Um, we're not sure that it's going to impact overall survival, but we may suspect that a child who may have been blind because of the delay in diagnosis, if we diagnose them earlier, maybe they're not blind. Maybe we would have caught it so soon that, you know, a parent or the provider saw a patient, went to brain first and saw, wow, this could be a brain tumor, spoke to us through, yeah. the, through the appropriate channels or sent them to the emergency room and got a diagnosis and we may have changed their outcome. And, you know, we may not improve overall survival, but if we've reduced the morbidity, so the complications from having a brain tumor, then I think we're one step further than we were yesterday. Do you think it's a barrier for PCPs or maybe just generally people in the community that think cancer is rare? And so they don't go to think, well, maybe we should... Right. So most pediatricians will see one or two cancer diagnoses throughout their whole career. That's that, kind of wild. And that may not even be a brain tumor. Yeah. Um, we do know brain tumor is pretty likely because leukemia is still the most common cancer overall. Brain tumors are the second most common. So, and they're right, right on the heels of leukemia. So we know that brain tumors are common and exist out there. You know, maybe we're not diagnosing all of them um, or, you know, it, it's harder to, to maybe when kids have so many symptoms to figure out, okay, well, maybe that's just a virus yeah. or maybe it's just, you know, growing pains, something like that. Maybe it's just migraines or how do we turn that into, you know, as a parent, no, I'm really more concerned about this. And it really hasn't just been going on one or two weeks. We're at a month now. We need to think about more. You know, and the goal is not to just image every child. I, what I don't want is every parent, every pediatrician thinking, oh, my goodness, could this be the one? Mm -hmm. What I want people thinking is just having a, a common conversation and thinking thoroughly and smartly about the child and thinking, okay, could this be a brain tumor? Like a clear understanding of when to. Right. And, and that there's a team here at least that would be more than willing to speak with those providers or those parents and, and either alleviate those fears or potentially agree and think need more workup is needed. Yeah. And, and that's what we, you know, from an awareness standpoint, 
I don't know that it's going to reduce delays in diagnosis like the program is in the United Kingdom. But mm -hmm. if more people are aware and can visit the site and, it's a start. you know, it is a start. And we hope that once we get further along with the content, that some of our brain tumor families will be inclined to give us feedback to see if they would use the, the website. You know, we may also use some type of app and, and see whether we can get the information um more distributed digitally or electronically and see how that may improve parents' interaction with their primary care providers. So before we wrap up today, and I know that you know my role with families is meeting them upon diagnosis and just kind of helping them figure out whatever school can look like for their child, but it's a lot of advocacy and a lot of getting people in their community to try to understand what this child is going through because a lot of people just don't know. So one of our segments on the podcast is called I Wish. Um um, so if you had, Dr. Coben, if you had a wish for just people in general to, to know about brain tumors and brain tumor patients, what would that be? That's wow. a big question. That's a really big question. Yeah. For the yeah. world. If you had a wish for the world, a wish for the world to know about brain tumor kids and how to support them, right? what would that be? You know, I think my wish would be understanding that they need really comprehensive, holistic care in the sense that even the child that we've talked about who's had surgery only mm -hmm. still needs lots of things. You know, we still know they're at risk for social interactions and learning disabilities and, you know, their ability to go live the life that was expected of them or that they may expect may be different. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the same for all of our childhood cancers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I appreciate being a brain cancer doctor and being in this brain cancer field. It's because our children are different. And I think our families use that negativity and turn it into a positive. Mm -hmm. When Absolutely. schools, you know, rub them the wrong way or think because they, they look fine on the outside that they are fine, mm -hmm. that they rise up mm -hmm. and they provide community to one another. And my hope is that more oncology team members, and I, I say that in oncologists themselves, both physicians, uh, advanced practice providers, become better at advocacy and awareness to help these families. Because I think in some ways, it's often a fight between school teachers, our team school teachers, the school teachers that are there and the families. Mm -hmm. And I think if we all did a better job to advocate for them, then we may not have as many issues from that standpoint that, yeah. you know, it, it, it takes five minutes to call their teacher. You know, if, if I'm, and, and I'm urging myself to do better, you know, mm -hmm. that if, if one of my children has trouble that I hope someone would on our team would come and say, Hey, can you call and, and try to talk to this teacher. And not to say that I have more power, but I think that when more people are bringing it up, they realize that, oh, we may have missed something. And I think we have to, we have to work together better in that. And, you know, as being one of the only brain tumor programs here in Indiana, we have to support all of our children and we have to do better. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. 
Well, thanks for having a conversation with us today. And hopefully that's the goal of this tool, right? This podcast is to connect people that are affected by cancer, to spread awareness, because I don't, I think, you know, a lot of people, and we were just talking about schools, but anybody that interacts with a child with a brain tumor wants to do the right thing. I think they just don't know how to do the right thing. They don't know the right words to say. So it's all about just educating Right. people in the community because I think they want to do that. They want right. to support the child. So And ask the family. I think yeah. the families have so much to give us an offer in their journeys. And I think we often, even myself, jump to what we think would be best for them. And as we know, our families will tell us, you know, they get a voice and they, yeah. they learn that voice and develop that voice over time. But, you know, I think for those who don't, you know, have cancer or aren't affected by brain cancer, you know, ask the family you know, what you can do for them, but I bet they'll tell you what, what you can do for the, the community at large, because it won't just be about their child. It'll be about how we improve the care for all of our children with cancer. Absolutely. And every family that I've talked to about even just this project alone, Lifting the Fog, and um, has said, this is such a great idea for for other children. It's always about not just my right. kid, but I want this better. Or, you know, we walk out of school meetings um, and I hear moms all the time say, well, hopefully we can figure this out for the next kid that comes to this school with a brain tumor. So families are so invested in not just making differences and changes for their child, but for this community, because it's a community that has a lot of needs and it's schools and communities, just like pediatricians are not used to seeing children with brain tumors, right? It's not the most common um, aspect. And so, what I, again, what I'm inspired, inspired by is our families who pave the way for mm-hmm. other brain tumor mm-hmm. children, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that may be both in their own school and maybe at local events by providing their experience. You know, mm-hmm. um, one thing that we will be launching hopefully in the next few months is actually a brain, uh, a brain tumor only camp at Bradford Woods. I can't wait for this. And um, this will be only for children and families with brain tumors. Mm -hmm. And my hope and what I've learned from doing a brain tumor only camp over the past few years is the profound experiences that the families have to offer. Yeah. And and hearing that family who's just off therapy, who's kind of lost and not sure where to start. Mm -hmm. And that family who's been doing it for 10 years and says, don't worry about it. We got this. We'll, yeah. we'll know exactly. Yeah. We can tell you what to do on, yeah. on all these timelines. And to me, that is just amazing. Yeah, here's something we tried. And then you hear a parent say, um, oh my gosh, I didn't even think of that. Right. And just how I, I think was this year's, cause I know we do brain tumor ed day. Was right. that the third or second annual? I don't think it's not been many it was years. Third, second or third annual. And, you know, with Beth, our nurse coordinator, we will continue to to push having an education day as well that's separate from the the brain tumor uh, camp so that we can continue to to provide yeah open and insightful experiences for our families. There was lots of opportunities in that day where you saw families just sharing with one right. another and empathizing with one another and feeling connected and so hopefully we can just provide more and more opportunities like that for families. Before we go, is there anything? So I know you mentioned your website. Is there, can you say that? Brain First. Okay. Uh, it will be brainfirst.org. I don't, at this point, um, we can't access any of it because we're still moving content over and trying to um, kind of find out what's going to be the best um, best overall scheme for that. Uh, but that will be coming out hopefully in the next few months. 
And then obviously the uh, brain tumor family camp, uh, which should be next month. Um, we're still deciding on and kind of finalizing what that will look like. We will at least have our brain tumor education day mm-hmm. in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as a brain tumor program, we're constantly looking for ways that we can improve um uh, both for ourselves and and for the patients and families we care for and figuring out what works best. You know, we, we know we need more psychosocial services and school support and and these other important parts of how we care for our children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we can only do that without the support of our, our parents and families. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. And as always, Lifting the Fog is an independent podcast. All information, thoughts, and opinions shared are for informational purposes only. No material on this podcast is intended to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your qualified health provider with any questions that you may have. Thanks for tuning in, and please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at LiftingTheFog1 and email us with any questions or thoughts on future topics at LiftingTheFog1 at gmail. Thanks so much. Have a great week, y'all.